electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Market Moving Insight and Analysis. Join Jim Cramer, David Faber, and me, Carl Quintanilla, on the opening bell hour of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Good Monday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber at Post 9 of the New York Stock Exchange. Cramer has the morning off. Future steady as the Bulls finally put together a winning week on the S&P. Ecodata is going to dominate this week. Jolts tomorrow. Jobs number on Friday. Two-year does hit 5-1. That's almost a two-month high. Our roadmap begins with Commerce Secretary Raimondo in Beijing today telling the Chinese it is, quote, profoundly important for the two countries to have a stable economic relationship. Plus, 3M is one of the biggest gainers on the S&P this morning. The company reportedly agreeing to pay about $5.5 billion. It would settle those cases over defective earplugs sold to the U.S. military. And we will have the latest around M&A as the FTC suspends that challenge to block Amgen's $27 billion deal for Horizon Therapeutics. I'll have a lot more on that and what it means, Carl, in just a moment. Let's kick off the markets, though, with a uh, new week. Uh, action on Friday, actually, coming out of uh, Powell's speech, not too terrible. A lot of discussion on Friday, David, about optionality, balance, uh, something for everyone. But on the dovish side, talking about some of the lagged effects of prior hikes that maybe haven't hit the economy yet. Yeah, I mean, you know, reading all the commentary, I'm not sure that I understand anything more than I did when I uh, before uh, Jackson Hole in some way in terms of what it truly means for the movement of interest rates. But you can see a positive response this morning, this morning thus far uh, before we get started with trading about 29 minutes from now, Carl. Um, you know, in my world, a lot of talk about the lack of response of that NVIDIA quarter, not necessarily Jackson Hole as much as in terms of market action. What does it mean when it not just exceeds but greatly exceeds the already dramatically improved expectations and guidance, and yet the stock did not really respond in a positive way. Yeah. Uh, Mike Wilson gave an interview on Friday, Morgan Stanley, who's not been constructive on the market, who says that markets top on good news. And I can't think of any better news than what we got from that company. Uh, Today, Goldman's desk note kind of points out, uh, all right, stock's not going up on good news, might be troublesome for bulls. On the other hand, there's enough hand-wringing hand wringing about China, about payments, about specialty retail, that maybe the Tina effect, the, there is no alternative effect, kind of returns for tech. We'll see. Well, yeah, we'll see. I mean, when you have over 5% on the two-year, you also do wonder, although, again, we've been dealing with a higher rate regime for some time, but it does sort of, when the risk-free rate is available at that level, uh, it is that debate yet again in terms of how much of the bid there will continue to be for equities in a market environment like that. Um, and as for, you know, again, the response in the Treasury market, we can see right here in terms of uh, after Jackson Hole now, one-year yield briefly hit a high of, let's call it 5.5. Uh, Two-year, again, 5.106. That's the highest level since July 6th. Ten-year, though, uh, come down a bit. 
uh, Carl. Uh, so the longer end sort of calming down a bit after hitting some recent highs last week. Yeah. Uh, J.P. Morgan note this morning with Jackson Hole behind us. Where do yields go from here? Uh, over the next month, we do see yields moving lower. Uh, this view seems to be driven by a series of data prints that are disinflationary, both from the labor markets and from official inflation data. Of course, we'll see what jolts uh, brings us tomorrow. The jobs number on Friday, David, estimates are in the 170 range, which would put the three-month average at about a two-year low, going back to the beginning of 2021. And that's kind of the, those are the incremental steps you would imagine uh, the FOMC is going to want to see. Right. And I'm sitting in Jim's chair so I can play him, though. Are oh. we going to see any slackening, though, in terms of wage inflation, I guess, becomes a key thing, at, or and or as a result of perhaps some weaker employment num- numbers, uh, will, will we start to see that truly calm down? Ha- there have been a bit of a trend. I know you follow it more closely than I do, Carl. But again, we come back to that wage inflation and how much that matters how much that figures into what the Fed is thinking about and or how much it contributes to underlying yeah, inflation. Well, Kramer's been, you know, he was very much hawkish on job hopping and what that was doing to incremental wages on the new higher front. Uh, we certainly had some data in the last couple of weeks from ZipRecruiter in the journal pointing out that new jobs are paying less than they were a year ago. Interesting piece on Bloomberg this morning looking at the, uh, the, the prospect of discounts at retail Going into back to school in the holiday, commentary out of Whirlpool, Foot Locker, certainly. And then you had the Fed chair, who did talk about some of the progress that's been made so far on Friday. Take a listen. Although inflation has moved down from its peak, a welcome development, it remains too high. We are prepared to raise rates further, if appropriate, and intend to hold policy at a restrictive level until we are confident that inflation is moving sustainably down toward our objective. And then, of course, you had the ancillary commentary from Mester, for example, who still a little bit hawkish. But then uh, uh, Bullard and Parker, of course, talking about maybe maybe we have done enough. Maybe it's time to let these prior hikes work their way uh, into the economy. Yeah. And where are we right now in terms of the view of consumer spending? Uh, we saw a lot of obviously we got our last sort of batch of retail earnings reports last week. Mixed bag, to say the least, did not show great strength in terms of consumer spending on goods, but services continues to be quite strong. And then you also get the credit card data, Carl, which I know you follow closely as well, which has shown uh, at least a rise in some delinquencies and overall concern about consumer balance sheets, although on the other side, we continue to hear that we still have excess savings. Yeah, I, there's some more, more pieces on the tape this morning about the consumer having uh, firepower, even though I think it's Diamond who suggested maybe that those excess savings run out around Christmas time. Yeah. Uh, but you haven't even begun to move into a period where people are tapping equity on their homes uh, or that kind of thing, where would, which would sort of move you into a different chapter in the consumer mindset. It would. Yeah. Speaking of uh, people's homes, of course, uh, perhaps no country where it's more important in terms of real estate ownership and overall net worth than China. Commerce Secretary Ginny Raimondo has been in the country. She's in the midst of a four-day visit to China, aiming to improve relations between the U.S. and what is the world's second largest economy. Eunice Yunus in Beijing now can bring us up to date on the very latest. Good morning from here, at least, Eunice. 
Thanks so much, David. Well, Secretary Raimondo uh, capped her first day here in China with what she's framed as deliverables. She said that uh, the overwhelming message that she's received from the American business community is that there needs to be more channels of communication. So she said today that she was announcing that the two sides, after discussions with her Chinese uh, counterpart over four hours, would establish a commercial issues working group an export control enforcement information exchange, the first of which is going to be held in Beijing tomorrow, technical discussions on protecting IP and trade secrets, and then an agreement to meet at the secretary and ministerial level at least once a year. Now, the danger um, is that potentially uh, one of the big complaints that the business community has had over years is that sometimes the Chinese, from their perspective, end up using talks as a concession. So the Chinese, they say, uh, say that they're going to talk about something and appear as though they're cooperating, cooperating but actually not making any changes. So um, that's one potential issue. Um, otherwise, though, her overall message has been that the U.S. and China can have a very strong trading relationship despite the tensions and despite her department's export controls. So even before she arrived in China, she had briefed reporters saying that um, narrow and targeted, as she describes them, U.S. export controls impact only 1% of trade. And uh, today, uh, to the Commerce Minister, uh, she uh, stressed that a strong uh, relationship be between the U.S. and China, as well as the $700 billion, she says, of trade between the two are profoundly important. And she also attended a, um, a, a showcase of U.S. companies, especially small and medium-sized ones, that do benefit from the Chinese market. Now, the Commerce Minister, for his part, had said that his country is ready to work to foster a more favorable policy environment. But as you guys well know, um, one of the big issues here has been that despite the pleasantries, it doesn't seem as though the two sides are really hitting the core issues that have been irritating both sides. And um, what I'm talking about from the Chinese perspective is that they want to make sure that that those export controls uh, don't hold back China's advanced IT ambitions. And then the, um, on the U.S. side, Raimondo directly addressed the national security issue, uh, saying to the minister this morning, in matters of national security, there is no room to compromise or negotiate. Guys? Uh, meantime, Eunice, uh, for the second day in a row now, we had a pretty good rally uh, in uh, in Shanghai on the back of incremental stimulus only to have that lost by the end of the day. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the government has been making these incremental steps, announcements saying that we're going to make it easier for you to, to invest in the stock market, uh, um, putting in a, a lower stamp duty, for example, or saying that they're going to, um, to firm up the, the IPO process. Uh, but at the same time, um, Evergrande, the massive real estate company, uh, uh, you know, went back and, and started trading again in Hong Kong. Uh, that affected sentiment. Uh, the stock price dropped at one point to 87 percent down. And the company has said that um, it, that it's for its first half of the year, even though um, it's paired its losses from what from the previous year by about half, still reporting losses of about four and a half billion dollars. So a lot of issues. Uh, still weighing on investors' minds. 
Uh, Eunice will watch that. Obviously, that's going to give uh, some ammo to those who are talking about potential Lehman moments in China. We'll watch it with your help. Eunice Yoon in Beijing, uh, thanks. Meantime, 3M, up sharply in the pre-market back home. Published reports say the company's nearing a $5.5 billion settlement to resolve those lawsuits with more than 300,000 claims that had sold defective earplugs to the military. Analysts had estimated that case could have cost 3M anywhere from 10 to $15 billion. It is the biggest mass tort in the history of the U.S. As you say, yeah, 300,000 or so members, of course. Uh, earplugs made by a unit that they purchased some time back for the, uh, for the uh, military. Uh, they've been contesting the case for a long period of time. There had been an expectation, perhaps, that the uh, ultimate settlement would require a higher number. We'll see. But they have been, Carl, settling. Uh, obviously, the biggest one is, uh, deals with PFAS uh, and, and water um, pollution uh, that occurred from the um, manufacture of that chemical by 3M. Mike Roman's been dealing as the CEO with all of these kinds of issues for quite some period of time. Uh, there has been question, of course, of the ability of the company to continue to pay a dividend at a certain level, how much cash it can continue to return to shareholders, given all of these uh, potential uh, uh, cash needs for, uh, for various settlements. But if it can put it behind us, clearly it will be a positive, and you can see that reflected in the stock price. Yeah, uh, Dow's been kind of buffeted. It will be today by 3M here and then by Boeing last week on some of those uh, manufacturing issues. Be curious to see if Jim gets more constructive, if they can sort of clear this stuff out of the way and get back to talking about operating performance. Yeah, I mean, again, that is kind of the key, and it does appear that they are making a, a lot of progress on that front. We'll update everybody if we actually get the official news in terms of an actual settlement. But coming up, we're going to also update you on the FTC because it paused that challenge to the Amgen Horizon Therapeutics deal. It's a deal that I've been reporting on a great deal, and this was an important development that we'll give you a little more insight on. Let's give you a look at futures. We get started trading here at the New York Stock Exchange 17 minutes from now. we got a lot more squawk on the street for you straight ahead. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX. Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big picture perspective is what great investors need. 
For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. Welcome back. Uh, an important update to a story that we've been following for months, essentially. Amgen's attempts to acquire Horizon Therapeutics for $116.50 a share in cash. It's already been months since I reported on the possibility of a settlement there after the unexpected challenge from the FTC to that deal on antitrust grounds. Um, The idea being, at least from the FTC's perspective, that Amgen could conceivably bundle the two key products from Horizon. Amgen, for its part, in fact, uh, in a response that was only filed last week saying, we have no intention of ever bundling. And by the way, even being able to bundle, given the fact that these drugs from Horizon are not administered by a pharmacy and not given at a pharmacy, you're actually administered either in a hospital or by a doctor in a doctor-patient setting, uh, would make bundling impractical, if not impossible, to begin with. Uh, We've been reporting on all of that. And last week, you may recall, on Wednesday, I talked about the fact that the staff, while they were in a position to negotiate a settlement with uh, Amgen, Uh, felt uh, that they could not fully uh, communicate with the commissioners because of the administrative complaint that was already in place in which the commissioners essentially almost act as judge and jury, putting the staff in a difficult position. All that's gone now. And so what this means is high likelihood that this deal will, in fact, close at $116.50 a share. Hence, you see the rise uh, in Horizon's stock price. How long it takes to get there, unclear, but it could be as soon as, let's call it, uh, well, a month till close because you've got to obviously reach the settlement uh, with the commissioners. And by the way, just for a minute on that, the staff and Amgen, I have been told, essentially have agreed on a deal would essentially have Amgen committing to never bundling. Um, But the question remains whether the commission will say, okay. Given the fact that they have withdrawn or paused the administrative process, uh, it would appear that they are likely to say, okay, we agree with this settlement that you've essentially reached with our staff. So we could see that any time in the next couple of weeks in terms of an, official, of an official settlement. But it's an Irish company. It's going to take a little time in terms of just some other things that need to go on in Ireland as well uh, to get the deal done to the finish line. Let's call it, though within a month. But again, we don't fully know. This is having an impact, by the way, as well on uh, Pfizer. Remember that $43 billion deal to acquire CGen for 200, Seattle, the old Seattle Genetics, for $229 a share uh, in cash? That's also up. Why? Well, the FTC has backed off here. You know, it was clear, as we've said many times, that the case that they were trying to make in terms of Amgen's potential for bundling seemed to be quite weak. And Amgen made it clear in their response last week that they never had any intention of bundling these, sto- these, these drugs to begin with, nor would they ever. Um, on CGen, there had been an expectation the deal would close without a, a great scrutiny. They got a second request. They're still in the process of filling that second request. They haven't reached a timing agreement. But again, the fact that they backed off here does seem to augur for a positive outcome there. And then when you come to antitrust and deal making in, the, in real time, uh, worth ending on Danaher's uh, acquisition of Abcam. Abcam is a company that offers the uh, what they say the scientific community highly validated antibodies, reagents, biomarkers, and assays to address targets in biological pathways that are critical for advancing drug discovery. Uh, that deal is done at 24. That's a disappointment. 
there had been an expectation that it might be higher. And in fact, it is even possible, and this gets to antitrust, that Agilent or uh, Thermo Fisher had offered prices that might have been excess. We'll see when we get the proxy. But that there was a concern about overlaps from those two, hence an antitrust concern. Uh, Danaher providing the cleaner deal in terms, Carl, of any concern around antitrust. So it still figures into deal making right now, but this was an important moment, not just for Amgen Horizon, but perhaps more broadly in terms of the FTC's willingness to consider a settlement given what did not appear to be a strong case, and obviously, as we point out many times, coming off of the significant loss it had in Activision. Right. I was going to say whether or not we could bundle Amgen, Microsoft, and uh, Danaher as sort of adding momentum to the field, but maybe your your tidbit about Danaher takes a little shine off of that thesis. You you know, you still have to be concerned if you are a a company considering a deal that might get real scrutiny, uh, or even when you don't expect it necessarily well, certainly from a timing perspective, given still the possibility you go to court. But that said, again, that's why this is being viewed more broadly than just specific to a particular deal, although obviously very important for that deal as well. You can see how close that stock is now coming to the actual takeout price, given it may be as little as a month away from close. All right. Well, we cover some M&A. We'll get to some IPOs in a little bit here. Uh, yeah. We'll talk some Disney as well. Shares experiencing a pretty rough August so far, trading at a nine-year low. We'll talk about what's next for the company and the stock. As futures holding up here this final week of August, we'll watch volume and keep our eyes open for any air pockets. Stay with us. Every day, Thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create, like Olu Sheyi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. A lot of news in the auto space, uh, both last week and more this week. Of course, we had the UAW strike authorization votes uh, on uh, Friday, got some results where the overwhelming uh, approval of the right to authorize a strike uh, at the big three. We'll watch that closely and auto sales later in the week as well. Meantime, uh, a lot of the other players in the EV space, David, whether it's BYD or Xpeng are signing partnerships, buying mobility businesses. I know you're interested or at least curious about VFS. Up another 20% this morning after their market cap went 4X last week. Yeah, the Vietnamese, uh, there's Chinese EV startup, Xpeng shares soaring as you see that. Um, And Carl's referring to a company that went public via SPAC a couple of weeks back. The key here with this Vietnamese EV maker that has a market value that exceeds, far exceeds that of, for example, GM or Ford, the key here is there's no float, none, um, because the SPAC itself was very small, the contribution of capital, hence the number of shares outstanding is tiny, I think, uh, and that's why it basically, there's no shares. Right is not an accurate reflection in any way of the fundamentals of that company. Doesn't mean it won't keep going up in part just because of scarcity value, because it doesn't take much, Carl. All right. All right. We'll be watching for the impact on uh, on CPI from used cars, mm-hmm. and particularly used EVs, where you're looking at outright declines year on year in the 20-30% range, yeah. which is really feeding sort of disinflation in the used cars, which is a big component of CPI in addition right. to shelter. Right. And then, obviously, continued focus, as we always do, on Tesla. Uh, one has to, you know, China and the Chinese market, the importance of that market to that automaker. 
it seems every price cut is reported on quite aggressively. Uh, we always talk, of course, about the ability of the company to have margin far beyond that of any of its competitors. That said, it's not that it won't be a focus. You can see a little bit of bounce um, more recently. Uh, interesting. You know, we talked to Eunice a moment ago just about overall stress within the Chinese consumer mindset. More stories out this morning that President Xi really is not a fan of anything resembling direct stimulus to consumers. Uh, more of it is on the edges, making it easier to trade stocks or buy back shares. Uh, industrial profits, by the way, in China for July down 6-7, which doesn't sound great. Not as bad as the prior month, down 8-3. So they've, they've got issues in fixed asset investment, yep. capital flow, unemployment, confidence. And, he, and again, to your point, perhaps, and more, most importantly, is his resistance to any kind of significant direct transfer to com consumers to actually get them to be able to spend more money. Let's get the opening bell and the CNBC Real-Time Exchange. At the big board, it is the Intrepid Museum celebrating the 80th commissioning anniversary of the USS Intrepid. Have you ever been on the west side, the Intrepid? Uh, yes, I have. Amazing yes, I have. time. Yes. I, have I haven't been since the space shuttle's there, though. Oh, nice. I have not actually go. seen that. So. At the NASDAQ, it's hunger-free America aiming to end hunger uh, in this country. So we'll get to uh, kick things off here, see if the uh, S&P can hold. I think J.P. Morgan's point this morning was that support, actually it was Fundstrat over the weekend, looking at support around 4350 uh, but that you'd really have to get back uh, into the 40, near 4,500 range to argue that we've reclaimed the, the momentum that we lost in August. Yeah, man. August is always a tough month, bro. It's coming to an end, well, though, and, isn't it? And now you got this morning, CFRA, Sam Stovall, says that September, I did not know this, uh, may be a continuation of digesting the gains. Since 1945, the only month where the S&P is down more frequently than it's up. So that would not argue for any kind of repair of, uh, of positioning or sentiment in the next four weeks. We'll, yeah, see. we'll see. At least you'll get volume back, ostensibly. Conceivably. People come back from vacation. Conceivably, we'll start to see a volume pickup, yeah. Uh, right now, a lot of the activity is going on, as you, as you note, in the Hamptons or other places that people are uh, hopefully relaxing on this conceivably last week of, uh, of the summer. Um, NVIDIA, which of course we mentioned at the top of the show, given the a very lackluster response to those incredible numbers, up ever so slightly. Uh, but overall, big tech up a bit more, uh, as we do see sort of the market's first broad response, at least to, to the various comments coming from uh, Chair Powell and others out of Jackson Hole. Uh, Carl, we'll see what we can sustain here uh, in terms of in terms of any significant rally. Only name I see a, a couple of the drug uh, companies sort of uh, a bit weaker, uh, and Netflix, which had rallied a decent amount last week, is also down a bit. But overall, as we start trading here on this uh, Monday and deep in August, we are seeing a general rally with the S&P up, what, half a percent right now. Uh, you mentioned Netflix. Uh, I forget which firm it was last week. Maybe it was Loop, uh, arguing that the, the strike actually could be a benefit to Netflix because the damage is going to be so concentrated in television. Of course, next month is when a lot of the TV networks roll out whatever false slate they have to offer, and they're going to have to be more creative this year because the writers, it does not look like any of these engagements and meetings they have are resulting in any kind of ongoing conversation or momentum. Yeah, at least it doesn't appear near term that there's a real hope for a settlement. Um, I happen to know, I'm sure you do, a couple of, of writers who have a hope at least that, you know, by October perhaps. The idea being that you really don't want to enter a new year still on strike. And obviously it starts to take a significant toll 
um, on the pocketbooks of many of those who are, who are striking. Not to mention, of course, it will result in a very empty slate at some point soon for many of the streamers. Um, gonna have to, I don't know how deep you're going in libraries so far, various things, but we're <laughs> yes. starting to have to. Hey, Suits is making a comeback. I and that's, saw yeah, that. That's I saw actually, that on Netflix, yeah, right? Yeah. Actually, yeah, they're, they're pushing it at the top of the feed. Uh, interesting, we're going to talk Disney uh, with Stephen Cahill in a little bit, but um, on its own 10-year history, now trading on a revenue multiple at the bottom percentile. Not surprising since it's actually trading near ten year, or near nine year closing lows today. UBS does reiterate a buy, um, but thirty second percentile on a forward PE at Disney. And, and David, we've made the point that these are levels that you saw right when COVID hit and the parks were shut. Uh, it is rather stunning to see the decline in the stock price. Although in some ways it is reflective of what is of uh, a changing. Um, earnings picture for the company in terms of and future. Uh, we all know that. We've talked a great deal about it. I've spent a lot of time talking to uh, its current leader, Bob Iger, about it. Uh, and there's just so much uncertainty, I guess, in terms of the future of ESPN, in terms of who or what they end up with when it comes to a partnership with either uh, a technology partner of some kind that helps with distribution or even the leagues themselves. Um, and what the value of that franchise will be once it does move, as it will eventually, to um, a streaming platform more in full, um, Carl. The, the parks continue, though, to be the cash engine of the company. They will continue to be that. Uh, and again, the, the question, both on the advertising front, more as a sort of current concern, although perhaps not longer term, and then the construction of those of the rest of the company is, is sort of the key. Direct to consumer, obviously, they continue to cut losses there, but those losses still, now I don't know how the strike will impact it, probably positively near term, but you do wonder about churn over a longer period of time if they don't have any new shows. Um, but yeah, Disney was notable last week. You can see it's bouncing ever so slightly this morning. Uh, watch software. It's been a really interesting couple of weeks on the software front because results out of Workday, uh, Splunk, Snow, Autodesk were all a little bit better than expected last week. Today, Webbush Dan Ives comes out on Salesforce, which we'll get on Wednesday, uh, reiterates and outperform uh, 240, says he sees um, more positive activity in cross-selling, uh, Slack integration, uh, maybe monetizing some of their AI efforts, but that's going to be key. And if Jim were here, I'm sure he'd be talking about the kinds of things we're going to see from the print and then, of course, from Dreamforce not to long from now. Yeah, he'll be out there at Dreamforce as he always is. Uh, you know, and again, he did point out last week that things have been rather quiet in terms of, uh, in terms of Benioff and whatever uh, new efforts they're making, for example, in AI, uh, which again becomes a key question when it comes to the future for NVIDIA in terms of all of the um, needs that they are providing for right now for so many of the companies that are pursuing generative AI as part of their business model. But the overall question being, Will it or will they find uh, products that actually are profitable? And what will that mean? I, again, sort of quoting those who are trying to explain why the stock did not actually respond more positively to that incredible quarter and the prospect for as much as $16 billion in revenues going as high as some would say, that's for the quarter, some would say could reach as a $100 billion revenue company in the not-too-distant right. future. I think Annual. The high of last week was somewhere, I think, around 480. So you're really not that far off. 
but you're right, given, given the strength of the guidance, again, uh, the inability for the, the bulls to push higher. Uh, Nike today, which we've been talking about on the flip side, that um, historic loss streak since the IPO, uh, 11 days lower, finally turned it around. Today, Stiefel goes to buy, reiterates a buy, I should say, but they cut, they cut the target to 135. This, David, has ended up being uh, in large part a China story, but certainly the Foot Locker quarter last week didn't help concerns about uh, the America's business either. No, that Foot Locker quarter was horrible, and the stock price obviously reflected that as well. You know, I, when it comes to China, it's so difficult to, to really be able to ascertain exactly the state of some of the, comp the companies that we know so well that do such important business, whether it's Tesla or Apple or Starbucks or Nike. Because the consumer there seems to be affected in different ways. Yeah. Also, you know, since shrink has been such a topic of discussion on the retail front, a couple pieces this morning arguing that it's it's providing a bit of a cover for companies that are not either their processes are faulty or they're dealing with just external leakage, so to speak. Why they choose these terms in the retail business, I have no idea. Uh, but but we'll see whether it's it's becoming the new weather. Remember how I used to joke about the yes. retailers would always... So some, the weather, it was the weather. Yeah. Whatever the weather might have been, it was the, <laughs> it was weather. the weather. And to your point, we do talk about shrink a lot for obvious reasons here. It, it is not solely theft. It includes theft. And theft is by far the largest single category under the overall definition of what they call shrinkage. Although I also heard shortage. Wasn't that used, I think, by uh, the Macy's CEO oh, really? last week? I think he used that, that term. Uh, any number of terms to obviously not say what is the largest component, which is theft. But to your point, it also does include damaged goods or a, a supply chain that may not be working as well as it should have and things not getting through the way they should. Right. Or internal theft. Internal theft, theft. Yes. 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 Also, of course. by the way, speaking of weather, um, we're going to watch uh, Hurricane Adelia set to become Cat 3. Uh, by Tuesday night and looking at win, uh, landfall on Wednesday morning. Uh, it's going to hit right in the uh, St. Pete area of the Gulf Coast. We'll see whether that uh, buffets uh, energy at all. We've already been watching that gas on the prospect of strikes in Australia, some of these LNG efforts, but um, there's a look at the map and it's going uh, to be a serious storm when it does land midweek. Um, back to M&A for a bit. It is not a merger Monday, but we did get a couple of deals. Obviously, we talked a great deal about Amgen and Horizon. Just to come back to the largest of them, Abcam, a U.K.-based company that, as I explained earlier, uh, is part of sort of the drug discovery uh, chain, if you want to call it that, um, helping companies uh, with their bio identify biological pathways that are critical for advancing drug discovery. Um, it's bought by Danaher. A company we also talked a bit about of late, although only because what had been historically incredibly strong stock performance for such a long period of time seemed to stall. Uh, not just the case for Danaher, but one of its competitors, uh, Thermo as well, TMO. You can see Danaher shares are up, perhaps because they're paying a price that was below what the market had anticipated. 24 is the price. As I said earlier, there may have been a couple of other bidders, perhaps even at a higher price, but with concerns around their ability to actually complete the transaction, given uh, that there may have been overlaps that brought antitrust uh, regulator concerns. So that may have been why uh, Abcam uh, decided to go with Danaher in terms of a definitive agreement. company kind of put in play as well a while back by its, I think it was its founder, a gentleman named John Milner, who owns about 6%. Not to be confused for us Mets fans who can go back 50 years with John Milner, the hammer, 
think he hit 22 home runs. We had such high hopes for him back in the early 70s. Would, if he could make a career in professional sports and manufacturing. And then transition yeah. to being a, a founder of that. Yeah, it would have been. I don't <laughs> believe it was the same John Milner, but I did remember, uh, remember the hammer. John Milner, yeah. uh, Alphabet's going to be a story this week. Interesting uh, a note, I think it was out of the Goldman desk last week, just asking, no, it was B of A, asking why Alphabet seems to outperform Amazon day after day after day. Uh, this week is going to bring us Google Next, uh, where the topic will be uh, AI initiatives and probably, or at least hopefully, uh, a steady diet of some good use cases. There's going to be presentations by Wayfair, Wendy's, Accenture, but you can see what Google's done, David, in the, ta in the face of a fairly challenging tape for overall equities and certainly tech, given what rates are doing. Not to mention, of course, we really were questioning their ability to lead when it came to AI, given we had always expected that they were the leader. And then, of course, ChatGPT came along, Microsoft's alliance with that company, the ability to, in, uh, to include uh, features of ChatGPT in Bing, for example, its search engine. But Carl, we, you know, ultimately, at least at this point, we have not seen that incredible monopoly, if you want to call it that, essentially, that stranglehold on search be really challenged in any significant way. Um, and obviously Alphabet does have its own product offering, um, although the 30 bucks a month from Microsoft is one of the early use cases for generative AI in terms of the enterprise. I'm just trying to, to read the moment here on this chart where uh, the Bing phenomenon really took off and yeah. the, the thinking was that Google was truly behind the eight ball. But that's been reversed. It, it seems to have been. It seems to have calmed down dramatically. I remember speaking about it. There were plenty of people telling me that they thought it was a real issue. Perhaps it will become one over time, given there seems to be more competition. But at this point, you know, again, we went from believing they had a, a serious lead when it came to AI, given all the developments, of course, that had taken Google, you know, a deep mind and things of that nature, to wondering what happened there. And now the market seems to have backed off a great deal in terms of any real concerns. Um, speaking of overall technology, it is worth uh, reprising some comments from Brad Smith. He's led the litigation effort, for example, uh, at Microsoft in terms of getting that deal with Activision done. It's a deal we've reported on for a very long period of time. Still remaining is getting the final approval from the antitrust regulator in the UK. They reached a new, new divestiture deal that is now being reviewed by the CMA in the UK. Here's what Mr. Smith had to say about it. I think hope is on the horizon. Uh, we have worked very hard, most recently, to address the concerns of the UK, the Competition and Markets Authority. That's what led us to make a big decision a week ago you know, to spin out the cloud game streaming rights to Ubisoft, an important French games publisher. Uh, we've prevailed in court in the United States. We've ensured that we continue to comply, even while we spin out these rights to Ubisoft, with our commitments in the European Union. Um, as the CMA in the UK has said, there's no green light, but they will review our proposal. Uh, and I'm hopeful that by the middle of October, we may just see this come together. In fact, we may see a flurry of deals that had a lot of antitrust concerns close, not to mention Activision, Horizon, which we've talked about, Pfizer CGen is a possibility. Uh, and so if you are a risk are building a portfolio around some of those names at their lows, you are quite happy right now. Certainly an argument for standing by your guns. Yes. <laughs> on when you think you have a very strong case. Yes, no doubt. Uh, Dow's up 283. Uh, Bapasani, best day for 3M since uh, June or so. 
All 11 sectors to the upside, and most importantly, the sectors that have had a tough time of it this month are the leadership groups. So take a look. Bank stocks turning around a little bit. That's uh, That's been a tough month for the bank stocks. We've seen... Uh, Communication services do a little bit better. Uh, semiconductors, another group under a little bit of pressure this month, also bouncing back. I think the important thing is uh, looking at big cap tech. Uh, again, this AI play, um, modest pullback for the month, but all of big cap tech stocks trading to the upside right now. So NVIDIA, uh, Amazon, Apple, Alphabet, Microsoft, all of them uh, are modestly to the upside. So the big question over the weekend is what happens after Powell here. The, the good news, if you if you look at what's going on uh, this week, it's going to be the information that Powell needs. It's all going to be the inflation data that we're going to be uh, getting here. So there you see what's moving here. Banks, communication services, all moving nicely here. So we're going to get the Jolts report on Tuesday, the PCE deflator on Thursday, and non-farm payrolls. This will go a long way towards figuring out this inflation data. And obviously, we are data dependent. That's Powell emphasized that over and over again. The good news is the markets anticipated what Powell was saying. If you look in August, what's happened, we indeed did have stronger economic reports, and we did indeed have higher rates as a result of that. And despite all that, it's been a pretty normal seasonal pullback of about 4 or 5% so far. Tech's down 5%. Bank's a little bit more, down 9% there. But generally, the volume has been seasonally light. Volatility has been tamed. The VIX's been around 15, 16, or 17. So no big, heavy selling pressure on the markets. As for the AI play, a lot of investors have been speculating that the demand for AI chips has been pulled forward. I don't know if that's true, but certainly the demand for AI stocks has been pulled forward. I don't know why people are disappointed by these numbers this year with NVIDIA up 200 percent, Amazon 60, AMD 50. These are extraordinary numbers, and this is the reason the S&P is so strong this year. And yet the pullback in the AI groups among the leadership stocks extremely modest. You would think people be taking some profits. But look, this is the month today. This is the debacle in in, uh, in AI stocks. NVIDIA down one and a half. Alphabet, AMD is a little bit more down 10%. My point here is th this is a pretty modest pullback given the gains that we have seen here. So the question is now September. So we're remember, the market is positioned for a soft landing. So you always want to play the pain trade. What's the What would cause the most discomfort? The most discomfort to the greatest number of participants, the opposite side of the soft landing, is we continue to get these strong growth numbers. And then, as a result, Carl, the rates creep a little higher. China looks a little weaker. And stocks are expensive and vulnerable to another little pullback like we're seeing in the middle of August. I think there's, remember, we've got, Carl, a modest pullback already. That's going to help mitigate the pain trade. But, you know, job creation is cooling a little bit. We're going to get the student loans back in very, very soon. So there's good reason to think that the economy is going to cool off a little bit in the next couple months. Carl, back to you. Uh, we'll see. We'll see what the data says, uh, especially this week. Uh, Bob, thanks. Speaking of which, as we go to break, let's check bonds this morning. We are off the highs of the session. Two-year did get to 510, uh, back to 505 right now. Ten-year also lower uh, at 421. You got yields mostly lower across the board with the Dow up 300. Don't go anywhere. Pretty solid start to the week. Uh, most Dow stocks are up. The only exceptions are J&J &J and Merck. All sectors are higher, being led by materials and energy. 44.30 on a Monday morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to Squawk on the Street. Shares at Disney, that's right near a nine-year low, although, again, up a bit today. Our next guest believes, quote, everything's on the table, and this could be the turning point. Steve Cahill, Cahill is a Wells Fargo security analyst, has a buy on the stock. Your price target, a bit of a ways from here. Steve, you know, just talk to me about the the the, uh, the action in the stock of late. What you've been hearing from clients, and what you think yourself in terms of what it reflects. 
Yeah, sure. Um, good morning, David. Thanks for having me on. So, um, you know, I think in order to like Disney here, which which we do, you need conviction in in three things. Uh, the first is that DTC is significantly under earning. Um, they've just announced a price increase. There's a lot of cost cutting going on there. The second is that ESPN can make the transition to direct to consumer. And I think that's a big unknown for investors. And the third thing you have to believe is that Parks is a great business and it's a cyclical business. And so a little bit of the weakness that you're seeing in Orlando right now is, is temporary and not structural. And so I think the answer to the question is all three of those things leave a great amount of room for debate. And given this period of significant transition, investors have you know, largely kind of thrown in the towel and kind of said, you know, wake me up when we're a little further along in these three issues. Yeah, I get it. Uh, you know, as for debate, I listen, there's not that much debate about the ability of those parks over a long period of time to always be earning significant amounts of cash. But to your point, when it comes to direct to consumer, what gives you a more positive sense there in terms of the ability of the company to ultimately earn or generate real returns that investors are going to want to see? Yeah, to me, this really comes down to what Disney is as a company, which is it's much more of a library of intellectual property that goes back, you know, almost 100 years, um, rather than a streaming service of originals like a lot of its competitors are. Uh, and a lot of its competitors, Netflix especially, have been very successful by uh, providing a lot of new and original content. I think if we had all the data on what Disney Plus consumers watch, there is a lot of library engagement in there, especially by kids and family. And so the way we think about Disney Direct Consumer is they have a ton of pricing power on that relatively inelastic base. And so these big price increases that they've been taking, we think are going to drop right through to, to the bottom line over the next 12 to 18 months. Um, and then, as you remember, when they had the proxy battle uh, earlier this year, Bob Iger's one of his first announcements was a major cost-cutting initiative. Um, you're really just going to start to see those in the back half of the year. So we think the combination of higher prices on revenue and lower costs are going to be an upside surprise uh, on DTC earnings as we get into next year. All right. Stock looking for a bottom. Perhaps uh, this is it. Steve, thanks for your insights. Appreciate it. Thank you. We'll watch the markets here on this Monday. See if the S&P can put together two winning days in a row for the first time this month. You got uh, financials, energy, industrials all up about 1%. Don't go anywhere. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. All opinions expressed by the Squawk on the Street participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information Squawk on the Street participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Squawk on the Street disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Squawk on the Street disclaimer. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.